Seatbelts are fastened. All right. Got the fans. Fans are blowing. Okay. So, Song of Solomon here. Um, you know, it's a, good, it's a good book to have in God's word. You know, God makes no mistakes. God knows exactly what he's doing. It's a good book to have and it's a good book to go through. Especially in this, you know, sex-crazed culture that we live in. I mean, let's, let's just be honest here. We live in a, in a world where so much talk, so much imagery revolves around this topic of sex. And yet there's a lot of people that still have a, a hard time even discussing things like that, even hearing the word sex from the pulpit. I'll be careful not to say it too many more times, all right? Maybe only 50 or 55 times tonight, but not to, no. We're not going to, you know, but even just hearing that from the pulpit is kind of a little bit odd for some people. It's, it's not comfortable. It feels like it's almost out of place. But as we're going to be seen as we go through the book of Song of Solomon, is that, hey guys, it's here. It's in the book. This is something that God has designed, something God has given us. And, and so it's laid out here in scripture to really Help us promote this idea of just pure intimacy. It's meant to reveal to us and show us what true love really is all about. Because, like I said, I mean, we can pick up a lot of stuff from, you know, media, social media, just our culture around us. uh, And, you know, what Hollywood has to say about this subject. And it's so distorted. It's so wrong. And it portrays such a... An unhealthy view of these things to, you know, our, our youth, our young adults, this culture, this generation growing up. In fact, this is an interesting thing. When asked to prioritize what people consider to be immoral, adults put not recycling pretty much near the bottom of their list, whereas teens and young adults consider not recycling to be more immoral than viewing pornography. Viewing pornography was kind of, ah, not recycling. Oh my goodness, how could somebody do that or not do that? That is so off, so wrong. And then the, the unashamed acceptance that we see today among the average person regarding the things that would cause people to blush a decade ago just, you know, is, has changed so much. People are free with these things. People are unashamed about these things, whether it's talking about it, viewing it, uh, being very outspoken about it. These are things that just is not a, a concern in a sense anymore among many people. And it's true that the enemy has perverted something that God has intended to be a blessing, to be good, something to be so wonderful and enjoyed, but to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. The church's response shouldn't be to just you know, be silent or, or prudish regarding these things because God has given us an entire book in the Bible that's centering around this subject. And that's what we get to discuss here tonight, albeit very carefully. Don't worry here. But now this book has been, you know, a difficult one for people throughout the centuries to grasp really without, you know, going red in the face, being embarrassed. Early church fathers, in fact, thought that when Solomon writes... As he will in chapter 4 verse 5, when Solomon writes about two breasts or her two breasts, they thought, many ancient church fathers thought, maybe he's referencing and referring to allegorically the Old and the New Testaments. All right? They thought, there's no way Solomon's talking about actual, please don't let him be talking about this actually. It's got to mean something more spiritual than that. It's got to be referring to the Old and the New Testaments by which we're, you know, fed, that kind of a thing. And so this has been a, a struggle for a lot of people to really kind of grasp their, their brains around here. Now, this book undercuts the two main perversions of biblical sexuality, asceticism and lust. Because asceticism on one side views sexuality as that evil to be avoided. Just, you know, it, it's just wrong to even think or talk about it. Whereas lust on the other side views it as really the hub of life that everything just centers around this. This is really what, what it's all about right here. So you got asceticism and you got lust. Well, this book here kind of puts things into balance because Song of Solomon pronounces the divine, it is good. Upon sexual attraction, which leads to lifelong commitment and fidelity. And don't worry, we're not going to get 
very graphic for graphics sake. Maybe some of you are going, you've already gone too far, Brent. Tuned you already. Hopefully not, but we're not going to get too graphic here. But I think we'll, we'll keep it very, very PG. Maybe PG-13. We'll see how it goes here. But this is how, you know, the book is. They don't, we don't want to hide from it or jump around anything or make something not what it is kind of at, at face value. So I want to be careful about that. We got to be ready to kind of talk about some of these things. You've, you've heard me share this story about uh, the eight-year-old girl who came to her dad and asked, Dad, what sex? Well, the dad was a little shocked, a little surprised that his eight-year-old daughter was asking him about this. So he proceeded to kind of very, you know, embarrassingly sort of describe the birds and the bees and try to explain it as well as, as an eight-year-old could ever possibly get it. And he's just kind of flustered. And he says, so why are you asking me about this? And then his daughter said, well, because mom said dinner's going to be ready in a couple sex. <laughs> All right. There you go. So... There's a few different interpretations to how the book of Song of Solomon is, is, is viewed, all right? I put up on the screen here. First of all, there are many people, it's a wide-ranging view. There are some that believe this to be just an allegorical book. And so they look at all that's going down and they simply approach it as though, you know, this is a book that's referring to the relationship that we have, speaking of God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church, all right? And though there are applications we can make about that, this is not just an allegorical book. The second interpretation views this as kind of a, a, a typological interpretation. And so they see this book detailing a, a real-life account with historical people, yet it's not really important who the people are because they're really just there to portray a type. That the bride is again the picture of the church and then, you know, the man here is referencing, you know, Jesus Christ here and, and, and again, just kind of the relationship. And so it again removes some of the literalness of it and makes it only, you know, typological. It's a type of something. Whereas then you have the literal interpretation of this book and the literal interpretation says that this is a single love poem that the writer intended to deal primarily with the subject of human love and marriage. This is a real love relationship between a man and a woman, a real man and woman, Solomon and the Shulamite woman, as we'll get to here. So these are real historical situations through which God intends to teach lessons now regarding the divine viewpoint in the very area of courtship marriage and what comes after marriage. Just as other historical books of the Bible teach us divine principles in other areas. So uh, we hold a very literal interpretation of this. Though there are certain things that are referenced in an allegorical way. Certainly you can look at this and go, this is certainly a deeper picture of God and his relationship with Israel or Christ and the church. And, and, and there's kind of that, that types of that. But we understand this to be very literal, that what is being written is being written in a very historical way by Solomon to explain and reference this relationship that he was entering into. So that's the way that we really want to view this book as we want to look at most of the Bible that we look at here very in a very literal way, all of it. Now, like I said, we'll, we'll view some very good application through our study here um, regarding our relationship, you know, as the bride of Christ that's what the church has been referenced to in the New Testament. The church is the bride of Christ. So we'll talk about that relationship here. But again, don't let it take away from the very literal meaning of what is taking place here. And it's great that this book comes after the book of Ecclesiastes. Because here's what we see in Ecclesiastes. If you remember, if you are here last week, Ecclesiastes references what life is like outside of the sun, apart from Christ. That there's nothing to be enjoyed or satisfied. But now as you get into Song of Solomon, we begin to see that life is something that is meant to be very satisfied when we enjoy it with Jesus and in Jesus and in the confines of what he has shown us how to live our lives here. And it is something that, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, where it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. We go to Song of Solomon now and go, oh man, life really is worth living. Because God is meant to bless us and, and to be with us and to just shower us with his love and, and blessing. It's unparalleled. And so, that's what we'll be looking at. And in this book here, we see Solomon and the Shulamite woman as the primary characters. All right? The Shulamite woman is an isn't named, she's not, we don't really identify her other than she's, you know, 
from this place, Shulam. She's a Shulamite woman. And uh, her and Solomon get married. And that's what we're tracking through as we go through this book. And this view is more consistent with that high view of scripture and it's an inspiration. With that view in mind, you're looking at these two historical figures. We see, you know, Solomon the king, but he's also being shown as this shepherd that comes along and uh, cares for this woman and, and brings her in and just loves upon her. Now, let's look at um, the outline that we'll be kind of tracking through here. We're going to see, first of all, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, details kind of the engagement. It's that courtship period that we're looking at between these two. And then in chapter 5, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 6, all the way to chapter 5, verse 1, we see the wedding now, okay? As these two come together, it's the wedding day, and they enjoy now just the kind of fullness of this relationship, becoming one, and then... Chapter 5, verse 2, to the end of the book, chapter 8, verse 14, we see kind of the marriage now just unfolding a little bit more. And we're going to look at some of the, some struggles even that they had. This is not just a fairy tale book or everything, you know, they lived happily ever after, because we're going to see that there were some things that they had to kind of work through and learn, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through. So the engagement, then the wedding, and then the marriage, how things unfold that's what we'll be looking at look at chapter 1 verse 1 actually let me just say uh before we get into it here that this book interestingly enough has been kind of the favorite book of some of the great heroes of the faith um ch spurgeon dl moody hudson taylor they all counted song of solomon as one of their favorite books to go through very interesting okay so now look at how this begins chapter 1 Verse 1, because it introduces the author right away, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, all right? So right away, he says, this is kind of the Song of Songs. This is like the number one hit. Remember, Solomon wrote a lot of songs. It tells us in, in Proverbs, uh, sorry, First Kings 4, verse 32, that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So this guy was... Quite artistic. This guy loved to write down Proverbs, write down songs. But what does he say? This is the song of songs, man. This is like the number one hit, baby. This is the one that kind of rose to the top of the charts here is what Solomon's getting. It's the best of all. And it's going to be so, not so much because of the composition, you know, how it's penned lyrically, but more so because of the object of the song. Because he's writing this song about the woman that he loves. It's not that he goes, oh man, that was a really sweet line there. Oh, that really, that, that arrangement really came together. So, oh man, that song is, so, no, he's like, this is the song of songs because this is about the one whom I love. And isn't it great that as we come together in church and as we sing, that, man, whatever song we're singing, that should be a song we just go, man, if we're singing that to Jesus, oh, this is a great song. This is a great song because I'm singing it to my Savior, my Lord, the one whom I love above all. It's being directed to Jesus. That's why we don't have to get too picky over songs and, and worship. Sure, we've all got styles that we like, but ultimately we should be coming and gathering with a heart that says, I just want to worship my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to share my love with him. I just want to sing of how awesome he is. And that's what we get to do as we gather together. Look at verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. So now here's the Shulamite. And, and we're going to be seeing how this is kind of bouncing back and forth in this book between different um, writers or speakers. It's going to jump from the Shulamite, then all of a sudden Solomon's going to be speaking. And if you don't have that headings in your Bible, then you're going to be kind of like, who's speaking right now? Um, so hopefully you have kind of headings in your Bible that show who's speaking uh, before each paragraph there or each line. In some cases, there's a one verse. We'll have up to like three different people speaking in that same verse. We'll see that coming up here. But So here's the Shulamite woman now, and she's just sharing... How much she loves Solomon. She's thinking fondly of him. She's desiring to be with him. And, and this process may be looking a, ahead to the wedding night. The courtship has been going on. And she's awaiting the wedding night consummation. Perhaps is this point right now that she's looking at. She says, your name is ointment poured forth. Solomon's name, in other words, Solomon's character. Because in this day, especially 
a name meant something. A name carried with it just real weight, in a sense, more than it does today. And so she's talking about his character. She's like, Solomon, I love you because you're a man of just character and, and integrity. And so she's just admiring him. And then the Shulamite can see here why all the virgins swooned over him. Solomon just kind of come walk along and be like, oh, Solomon, he's so beautiful. He's so wonderful. You know, and everybody just be swooning. And she's just like, I can see what they see. I mean, you are indeed somebody to behold. And it's important, isn't it, in, in relationships that we really get to know the character of someone that we're, that we're entering a relationship with, that we're not just caught up or fixated on outward appearances or just being drawn to what we're seeing. Rather, we're getting beyond that and looking into the heart of the person, the character of the person, to see who they truly are. Because here's the deal. Beauty is going to fade, right? Beauty is going to fade. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for it on me still. It hasn't happened yet, just so you know. But, I mean, my wife hasn't faded. I should be saying that to her. It hasn't, baby. You're still beautiful. But beauty does fade over time. But the character is who you're going to be left with. That's who you're ultimately marrying, right? So we got to be careful. It's been said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. <laughs> That's pretty wise. Because beauty's not always going to be there. But you want to make sure you're marrying somebody that you can really spend the rest of your life with, that you are kind of linked with in spirit and soul and, and that character, that personality is there that you just love and admire. Now, with these thoughts in mind, the Shulamite is asking him to kind of draw her away. Come and take me now is what she's crying out here. Look at verse 4. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into, this, into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Her desire here, she's saying, my desire is to be with you. Just take me away with you. Take me away with you. And, and we can be drawn away by many things, can we? There's a lot of things that can be vying for our attention, our focus, our, our attraction, our admiration. But do you carve away time with your spouse? Do you, do you make the time to be drawn away together? Just to go away and just be together and, and just talk together. It doesn't always have to be, you know, in, in a, a real intimate setting. Candles, it can just be out for a walk, but you're just taking that time to just be together. And, and in this one verse, this is where I was referring to, we have a conversation exchange going from the Shulamite to the daughters of Jerusalem, to the Shulamite, and then to the daughters of Jerusalem, to the Shulamite. Again, just bouncing back and forth. And the daughters of Jerusalem, as we'll be seeing here, the daughters of Jerusalem possibly are speaking of Solomon's harem, uh, a group of ladies that maybe were, were there uh, around him, but daughters of Jerusalem sound a lot Better than that, so that's what we're going with here. But here's, here's what they're doing. They're expressing their desire to see this relationship unfold. They're kind of cheering on. You know, the Shulamite woman and Solomon are like, oh man, we're excited for you. They're, they're cheering them on. They're, they're running after the couple. They admire Solomon. They've been supportive of the Shulamite. And they seem generally interested in this relationship being successful in it, in it going somewhere. Now look at what the, the Shulamite goes on to say here in verse 5. She says here, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So, as the Shulamite kind of came into this group of women now, uh, there, you know, perhaps in the, in the palace and around Solomon, she's kind of standing out from the others. Why? Because she's one of kind of dark complexion. She says, I'm dark. I'm tanned. Now, in our day, we're looking at that and we go, oh, man, wouldn't that be great? I, we we want to be tanned. We got tanning, you know, salons to go in and get tanned so you don't have to go out on the beach and do it under the sun or whatever. But, but people today, they want to get tanned. That was, that's a good thing. To be, wait, you know what it's like when you go, you know, maybe to the beach for the first time in the summer. You just take, and people are like putting the sunglasses on because you're so pale and white and pasty. And you're just blinding people with that, right? You're just like, oh man, this is bad. Should've, I should have pre-tanned before I came out here, right? In our day, we like that. But in this day, you see, in this day, to be pale, to be very white was kind of a sign of beauty. 
Somebody that was dark-skinned meant that they were probably having to be outside working under the sun. They weren't living this life where they were able to just kind of be inside and just sort of pampered or, or cared for. So the Shulamite woman is looking at her appearance and she's kind of, you know, comparing it to the others and she's not feeling adequate. She's not feeling very, very lovely here. She's like, I'm dark and she's kind of complaining uh, about these things here. Now look at verse 8. She says, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. So here's Solomon now speaking to her. And, and what is he doing? He's looking to kind of sort of support her to reestablish that kind of you know, a- affirmation or esteem towards her. He welcomes her presence and companionship and he gets direction on how to, how to be together. He's not making excuses to try to avoid her, right? And, and so Solomon does something or says something that, that may not go over too smoothly today if you were to try to follow what Solomon is doing in Song of Solomon because he basically says, listen, you're like one of Pharaoh's horses, Right? Don't, don't try that at home, men. Don't be comparing your wives to horses, all right? That's probably not a good thing to do. But a filly, here as he says, uh, a filly is like uh, a horse about three years old. And the chariots would have been pulled by males, by stallions. So what Solomon is saying here, is he's saying to this woman, you're standing out. You're something so much different than what is all kind of around me here. And he's in hot pursuit of her. She's, she's standing out. She's like kind of, captured his attention right basically Saul is saying that he only has eyes for her and that would have been meant so much to her after she's kind of detailing the sort of insecurity she has about her dark complexion her her laborious life that she's had to you know deal with and and having to work out in the vineyard so she's just kind of being propped up here supported strengthened here by Solomon's words to her as he's sort of reaffirming just that kind of love for her. That's an important thing to do, isn't it? That we're those coming alongside one another, just sort of uh, speaking words of edification, looking to build one another up, especially in the marriage relationship. That we're cont- Sometimes we get to that point where we think, ah, they know what I, I think. They, they know how I feel. Well, maybe they need to hear it anyways. I'm not just talking about women, but, but guys too. I mean, maybe, maybe we need to be sharing that more with one another, just letting people know, telling them again how much we, we love them, how much we care for them. Look at verse 12 here. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. So here's the Shulamite speaking now, the woman. And, and she recounts how even, you know, if Solomon is at his table or whether he's attending his duties as a king, that his love is, is for her. Or that his love for her is, is there with her. Because she's longing for the time when they're going to be together, right? And so she says Solomon's like that bundle of myrrh that lies all night between her breasts. She longed to have Solomon with her. And, and Hebrew women often wore that kind of bag of myrrh around their necks that would hang down. And it would be that fragrance, right? It would be kind of helping just create that nice scent or perfume there. Because in, in these days, the no deodorant, that, that would have been a very precious thing. And so she's kind of showing Solomon, you know, like I'm preparing myself. I, I want to be, you know, setting off that fragrance that's going to be sweet to you. And so Solomon returns his praise and, and adoration of her. He says in verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. All right. Now there's great... Mutual love, a great building up together. They're just kind of bouncing off one another here. One person saying something of how much they love or just whispering sweet nothings. And then the other one replies right back. And some of the stuff you're kind of looking at this going, what is it that you're saying? Why you go from calling her a filly to now she's, you know, like a bird's eye here? Like, what is this all about? Dove's eyes? Well, to say that she has dove's eyes speaks of a, a longing gaze into one another. He's, he's captivated with her. Interestingly, Doves are a bird that stay with one mate through their life. Very unlike what you generally would see in the animal kingdom. 
So dove's eyes, it's a very focused kind of love. And it's, and it's a very, you know, exclusive kind of love is what he's, he's sharing here. It's a devoted love. And then in verse 16, here the Shulamite says, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fur. So she returns the, the loving praise and, and, and affirms that beauty. And then she recounts this kind of outdoor setting. That's what she's saying. There, there's perhaps a time where they were out together and, and outdoors, maybe having a picnic and just lying down. And she's remembering just how, you know, seeing how the bed was just green and the beams of our houses are cedar, looking up at the, the trees and the branches and just that time that they just kind of spent together, just enjoying one another. And so recounting all this. And then she says in verse one of chapter two, I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. So the Shulamite woman speaks the first part of verse one and then Solomon follows up in the second part uh, of verse, um, or follows up in verse two there I should say. And so she's kind of speaking of herself in self-deprecating ways, right? She's kind of, saying as they would sit in the pasture lands that they would see countless lilies right all along the fields and and all across and and she would just kind of say i'm just like you know one of those lilies of the valleys i'm I'm nobody sort of special or the rose of sharon was a common meadow flower as well she sees herself as nothing special just something common as you would look out on the on the valley and see all these things but then Notice what, what Solomon does here. He says in verse 2, he, he responds to her comments with a reassuring love. He says, you may be a lily, but you're a lily among thorns. Everything else is just, you know, like, man, that's just trouble, prickly. But you're a lily among the thorns. You clearly outshine them all. Now, we should point out here that this most likely is Solomon's first wife that he's engaged in. Remember, Song of Psalms was written early in his life. Proverbs written in the middle part of his life as he's kind of grown and really grown in wisdom. Ecclesiastes written at the latter part of his life where he ventured away from the Lord and lived life apart from God for a time, experiencing the things of this world. So here this is early in his life. And so it's very possible this is his first wife that he's, he's referring to and speaking about. Now we know later on that he's going to have 700 wives and 300 concubine or porcupine however you want to say it because it would have been very prickly for him and he's kind of realizing you're, you're like a lily among the thorns man this is this is true love here he's going to experience a lot of other stuff down the road but this is something that was very genuine for him and and he would have saved himself a lot of trouble here if he had just kind of followed proverbs five eighteen, and maybe he wrote this in reference to not having followed it but it says let your family be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth Maybe he's looking back on his life and said, man, I kind of screwed that up. I've sort of added a few more things than I need to in my stable here, and it's not been well for me. Not been good. And how he's longing, perhaps, for that genuine and, and, and exclusive relationship, again, with the wife of his youth here. Nevertheless, he's experiencing at, at this moment what true love is all about. And the Shulamite is as well. Because she says in verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples for I am lovesick. So passion is really arising here, right? It began with kind of this coming together in verse 3 and as they they start to kind of really enjoy one another and, and start to have this attraction and it continues on here. And this love now is just open and true. She says that his banner over me was love. That was it. Now, now you remember all the, the different tribes that they'd marched on. They'd have that banner that was representing their, their tribe with an animal that kind of represented their tribe. And so she's saying, his banner over me, all it says is love. That's how she's kind of identifying herself in relationship to Solomon. It's just, there's just love here. That's what's kind of just being shown to me. And we're going to see how this, this love is a, a, about to get satisfied or, or consummated through that physical act here. 
The Shulamite is feeling weak because of these feelings she's experiencing from lovesick. It's almost like she's just ready to faint over just these feelings that are, are coming uh, of this love as they're, they're enjoying this courtship and moving towards this point of the wedding day. It says in verse 6 of chapter 2, His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. What a, a good verse that is for us here. That's an important verse there in verse 7, especially in the day that we live in. And so here we see, before we get to that, the, the recounting of an evening of pure intimacy, the first of several in the book. In fact, the language in these sections is so graphic. The, the things that we'll be talking about, so graphic that um, the Hebrew rabbis prohibited the Jewish young men from reading the Song of Solomon until they reached the age of 30. Can you believe it? They're like, oh man, this is too much. It's too much for me and I'm 60. So we're not going to let anybody under 30 read this book. That's kind of where they were going with this here. Because these passages might indeed just steam your glasses here. But they teach us that God created sexual expression, not just for procreation, but for pleasure as well. This is something that God desires here, that you will be blessed in, in this act. But it's got to be within the parameters of marriage because God intends for sex to be fun and pleasurable. But that's just it. It's reserved for marriage. This gives way to the instruction to the daughters of Jerusalem not to start what they can't finish. That's what the Shulamite says. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Don't get that ball rolling. Don't get the, the heart pumping. Don't get yourself in a compromising position where you can't finish what you started. Don't even get the engine revved up is kind of what Solomon or sorry, the Shulamite woman is getting at here. Oftentimes, people that lose their virginity outside of marriage don't set out to do so. This isn't something they've gone out that night and said, I'm going to go and lose my virginity tonight. It's something that often one thing leads to next, and they haven't put proper safeguards around them, and things started going and developing to a point where they were unable to stop. They allowed these things to get awoken, to get stirred up. But the Shulamite says, man, do not stir up love until it pleases or until it's the right time, which is in the confines of marriage. This whole section here sees Solomon. Now, he's leaving the palace. He's seeking out a bride from a lowly place. She was, she was dark and felt unlovable, as we've been reading in these first few, few passages here. And it's such a great picture for us uh, of our Savior, Jesus, who left the palace of heaven. Right, He came to us when we were dark and stained by sin. We had nothing to love in ourselves. But Jesus came and he loved us. He put that banner of love right over us. He cleansed us and made us his bride. He's shown us his incredible love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. Listen, if you, ever you doubt God's love for you, all you need to do is look to the cross and see the incredible love that truly his banner over us is love. Just like we've seen Solomon here, cruising out from the palace, coming into a place here of just this person working. Working under the strain of labor. That's kind of our condition. But Jesus came, loved us, saved us, spared us, cleansed us. What a blessing. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says, The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. So the Shulamite woman is longing for her man to come. She hears his voice and she's full of excitement at his arrival. I'm going to just put our, our yeah, outline up here. So here she's just excited for Solomon's arrival. And let me just ask you women here. All right. Are you, are you full of joy when your husband comes home? Is he greeted with, oh, honey, so good to see you. Or is he greeted with, a, you're late. What took you so long? You know, you, <laughs> my wife's like, yeah, whatever works, right? So, no. Um, is there that excitement, that longing just, just to see him, just to hear from him? Now, 
we all know that we we're going to go through those seasons uh, in our relationships where, you know, it's not like it was when we first met. Things kind of get comfortable. But there's no reason why it, it has to be. There's no reason why we can't continue on with that kind of heart that says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. How are you doing? How have you been? What's been happening today? You know, just and just having that love and desire just to hear from one another. To show that love, not just by, by word, but by action. And Solomon gives us a great example how we should be responding to our, to our love or, you know, to our wife. Notice he comes leaping and skipping. I mean, this guy is excited too, right? He's just like, woo, skipping along, right? Man, I think you should literally try that sometime. <laughs> just come out of your car and the judges start skipping to the front door of the house. Honey, I'm home. I'm just skipping along. That might go far. Could get you a few get out of jail card, free cards, you know, when you mess up the next time, right? Who knows? But just try that, just to show that spring in your step that there's just kind of an excitement, you know, to, to see your wife. Now, for these two, these traits probably came pretty easy in the throes of new love. I, I get that. That's very understandable. But here's what I'm saying is that we should never reach a point in our relationship where things just get very stale and stagnant, where we stop trying where we stop looking to pour in or invest. And, and, and there's a lot of things that we can be doing just to keep that fire burning brighter and stronger as we grow together, as we grow older. And yes, here's the thing, it might, it might take work. But if you don't work at your marriage, your marriage won't work. Marriage is going to take some effort, going to take some work. Building that relationship is going to take some work, but that's not a wrong thing. That's a good thing because this is something you care about, you desire. When you have something you like, you're going to work at it. It's the same in our relationships. Keep kindling that fire. Put in the effort and you will be blessed. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up. My love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth their green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes. Give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So Solomon calls her out here now, and, and he wants to, to take her out. Perhaps he's, he's looking to go for a walk in the countryside, just spend some time with her. That's what is involved in this courtship process, just kind of learning, growing together. They're wanting to be together and grow together. Now, since we're talking about this courtship period, this this dating process, let's just talk about what this looks like because our culture has kind of, I think, become obsessed with just being in relationship for the sake of being in relationship, right? People move from one partner to another jumping from this relationship to another you know quicker than you get a table at olive garden like it just moves so quickly a lot of times and it's not always healthy in doing so and and though the bible here doesn't give us a definitive guide on dating which would be very nice it does supply us with some wisdom to kind of help in this process first of all dating or that courtship kind of period should be for the purpose of moving towards marriage all right, let me just say, I don't think there's any point in people dating if marriage isn't an immediate goal or possibility. And that you, you know, I've heard people say, I'm in this relationship with this person, but I don't think we'll get married. I don't really see him as husband quality or wife quality. And you're looking at this going, then why are you together? Why are you still in a relationship? Because that's what the whole point of it should be is to move towards that point of marriage. And if you can't see yourself marrying that person, then that's not the person you should be in relationship with. And it's going to take some time of learning and growing together here. Secondly, take time to get to know the person, right? And and do so in the right setting. There's nothing wrong with being friends first and hanging out in a group setting their safety in that. You don't need to jump right into this full-on dating relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, where everything is done just kind of exclusively now. No, there's, there's great safety in just kind of being in, in, a, in a group setting where you're just getting to learn and grow together and find out one another to see who each other is and see if there's something that is of, of, of interest in, in, in kind of sparking that sort of desire of, man, I could see myself marrying this person. 
Keep good safeguards around you. And take time to know the person through different seasons of life because there's no need to rush into things, right? It's easy to fall in love, but you want to grow in love. Learn their character. Learn their friends. Learn, get to know their family. Get to know how they handle different situations, circumstances, trials, and just experience life together. Even have a good fight with each other. Nothing wrong with that. I hear some people say, oh, we never get into fights. We've never had a fight once in our life. And you're just going, oh my goodness. You guys are in for a rude awakening here. Because it's going to come. It's natural. It's not wrong to have a fight. It's, it's what you do with that. It's how do you learn to resolve those conflicts. That's the important thing. And then, thirdly, date without sexual involvement. Now, it seems like a no-brainer. But that's sadly become quite an unrealistic thing in our society today. And the myth goes that you need to see if you're compatible in bed before you know this is the right person for you or not. Have you ever heard people say that? Just absolutely stupid and asinine. I've heard of one person taking flack because of his virginity. And people said, listen, if you never slept with your girlfriend, how will you know if you're compatible? His reply, I won't know if we're not. I'm a virgin. Got nothing to compare it to, so I'm good with that. If you never enter into this level of physicality to begin with, you'll never know the difference. Whether you're compatible, whether you're good, or she's good, or he's good, or not, you won't know, and it doesn't matter. Because if you're male and female, you're compatible. (laughs) Sex and dating only confuses things and messes things up. Lastly, take time to grow together spiritually. Don't wait for marriage to begin praying together. Do it beforehand. Cultivate that kind of relationship where where Christ is the center of everything you're doing and all that you are and and experience that together. Just like we saw in Ecclesiastes last week that 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 three-fold cord is not easily broken. Bringing Jesus into our relationships, there's strength in that. Well, moving on now, we look at the wedding here now in chapter 3, verse 6. That's where we move now to the actual wedding. It says in verse 6, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchants fragrant fragrant powders? Behold, it's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it. Of the valiant of Israel, they all hold swords being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold. It's seed of purple, it's interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. After the courtship and engagement, the bride waited for the groom to come and get her. And she wouldn't know when he would come. Think about that. She had to just be ready. Now, when he began to come, there would be a large procession that would follow him. As we see here, there's the valiant men, these kind of like security guards in a sense. They're carrying that couch of Solomon's kind of like that throne sort of couch that they would sort of lift, you know, and, and, and allow people to sit on and carry him back. And so there's this huge procession. So they begin to call out, right, and, and sound kind of the, the alarm. So the, the bride had to be ready and ready to spring to action here when this happened. So we see here that all the things that Solomon's bringing and giving, he's just really kind of treating the Shulamite as the queen that Solomon already saw her as. He's got the, the crown there, which his mother crowned him. And, and just the seed, just all the, the fancy things along with it, just treating her like the queen that he already saw her as. And here now Solomon is looking forward to the wedding night and he's reflecting on the beauty of his new bride. And he starts with her head and just works his way down here in chapter 4, verse 1. We see this description that Solomon begins to make as they've, they've entered into this marriage now, the wedding, and here's kind of the wedding. And he's just, he's just kind of going over his wife now, just like, man, you are fine. Like, that's kind of all he's got to say here. Behold, chapter 4, verse 1, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins. 
and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, the king begins with just kind of a general description of her beauty, right? Behold, you're fair, my love. Behold, you're fair. The loveliness of the bride now is set forth ultimately in these seven comparisons that we've just gone through. Seven, the number of completeness, perfection. So he compares her eyes to doves, her hair to a flock of goats, her teeth to a flock of shorn sheep, lips like a strand of scarlet temple, like pomegranates, her neck like the Tower of David, and, and her breasts like two fawns. Listen, in today's language... Saying these things to your wife might cause your eyes to look like two hockey pucks, right? Like, it may not go well for you. There might be comparisons to be made on the other side after she's done with you. When you start comparing her teeth to that of a a sheep, shorn sheep, like that's not, doesn't sound great. But in this language of that day, right, these are great compliments. These were comparisons that somebody would have seen. Indeed, the, the comparison to this beauty so it, it it loses its translation today i get it right don't try comparing your wife's hair to a flock of goats right that's like the farthest thing that you want to say okay but in this day that was something that just meant again the color of it is speaking more of the color of that kind of goats that were in that area in that day and a shorn sheep very white and just kind of pure having me washed so he's saying your teeth are just lovely they're they're pure there's no like, you know, broccoli stuck in there. There's no like kind of missing gaps. Like, it's just pure, white, clean, just lovely. So this is kind of what Solomon is doing. It's, it seems odd, but he's laying it on thick to his new bride here. He's just really revealing, not just that he loves her, but, you know, how much he's just attracted to her. And then in five, chapter 5, verse 1, we seem to read of Solomon's enjoyment in their consummation. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So this is like kind of speaking of that consummation. Remember, God's not a prude here. All right? He's given sex as something to be enjoyed when we follow his ways and his instructions of how to enjoy that. And here we see Solomon being blessed in this relationship because he's followed God's mandate for marriage and sex. And so here Solomon's just saying, oh, incredible, wonderful. Fireworks are going off, that kind of a thing. Now, in the remainder of the chapters, we're going to just see how the, and we're going to skip through a lot here as we've kind of gone through a lot of this already, but... We're going to see how this marriage just kind of continues to mature. And we get into sort of that, that more, you know, seasoned marriage. We've gone from the courtship, the engagement, to the wedding, the honeymoon. But now we see we're kind of moving past that honeymoon period. And we're entering into life as a, a married couple here. It says in chapter 5, verse 2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He he knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Now, we're not sure if the Shulamite is dreaming all of this. Because she says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Or whether she's, you know, kind of trying to sleep, but not really there. And just pretending to be asleep. Wouldn't be the first time, right, ladies? pretending to be asleep. Honey, are you awake? (sighs) Don't disturb me. Listen, whether it's a dream or not, here's the thing. She's in bed, but Solomon's not. In fact, he's, he's trying to be with her, but there's resistance. Not able to get in. The door's locked, and she's not moving quickly, as we're gonna see as we continue on here. But we see that they're starting to have what seems to be the inevitable struggles within the marriage. There's been a conflict, and this shouldn't surprise anyone. What they need to learn here now is how to resolve those conflicts. No matter how much you may have imagined a perfect marriage, 
There's always going to be things that come up where you will need to work on maintaining a healthy and loving environment within your marriage. The reason that we see, I think, divorce rates climbing steadily and progressively year after year is because people simply check out of the 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 relationship and responsibility now obviously i know there's a lot more that goes into it than that that's not just a kind of a a a be-all general statement but a lot of times what we see is that people are just not willing to work on the relationship they start seeing things start getting difficult and they're like ah what's the point i'm not going to work on this i'm not going to stick around and be a part of this marriage i'm not happy at I do even hear Christians saying, God would just want me to be happy. So I'm just going to move on. No, God's not interested in you just being happy. He's interested in you being holy and living in the way that you need to live and following him and, and honoring not just that marriage, but honoring him through your marriage. Oftentimes people will think, you know, if I have to work on my marriage, then maybe I just married the wrong person. Shouldn't this be, be easier? And people become disillusioned or disengaged and then the relationship breaks down. See, here's the thing. You're never going to find the perfect person. How do I know that? Because there's no perfect people. All right? There just isn't. And, And in fact, when you have two people that come together in marriage, you have two imperfect people, two sinners coming together and you're just doubling the evil. So you think you're going to just find the perfect person and marriage is just going to be a heavenly bliss all the way through? Like my marriage with Michelle? It only happens in a rare occasion. (laughs) Trying to save face for some of the earlier stuff, but it's not always going to be the case. But here's the thing. When we recognize that I'm not perfect, my spouse isn't perfect, but I know the one that is perfect and all that God's called us to be is to be those that lovingly come alongside and ultimately die to ourself to serve and bless our spouse. And we do so in and through the strength of the Lord. And when we bring the Lord into it and build our relationship on the solid rock, it, it will help prevent our marriage being, you know, a marriage on the rocks. It's important that as the marriage extends, we continue to build up our spouse. Every opportunity we get, continue to remind them of how much you love them, how special they're, how, how happy you are just to be married to them. Now, when the Shulamite does find out, uh, finally does get out of her bed to answer the door, Solomon's going to be gone. And she sat there and made up some excuses. I didn't, I didn't read, but look at, verse, look at verse 3. Here's the Shulamite. I, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them again? My beloved put his hand by the latch on the door and my heart yearned for him. And then she came to her senses. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers of liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. Do you see what she's doing? She's just making up excuses. Oh, my robe is off. How can I put it on? And you're like... Well, you start by putting one arm in the sleeve and then the other arm in the sleeve. It's not difficult. And then all of a sudden it's on. But how easy, how quick we're to make up excuses. Well, you know, how am I going to do that? Well, oftentimes it's quite easy. You just do it. Right? And she's making up these excuses and suddenly when she comes to her senses, he's gone. He's left. He's not, he's not sticking around. And she says, there in chapter 6, verse 2. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. So the Shulamite remind, uh, remembers that as much as he is the king, he's got other responsibilities to tend to. She knows that. Yet in all this, she knows that she is his. Right? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a mutual confidence and security here knowing that they're for one another. Even if they may be away from each other, there's no insecurity. This is a wonderful byproduct of marriage. It should be at least. Having that oneness and enjoyment of togetherness and just confidence and love one for another. So she, she's understanding that. She's, she's kind of reaffirming herself that though he's gone well he's got other things he's dealing with 
He's not left me. I am my beloved's and, and he is mine. And now Solomon enters the picture here now. In verse 4 of chapter 6, he steps in and confirms his love and affection for her. She may have heard him earlier, but that doesn't change his attitude toward her. Look at what he says in verse 4. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Now, Tirzah was a lovely city which became the capital uh, of four kings in the northern kingdom. And she was as lovely as that capital city now of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. She was as overwhelming in beauty as an army with banners, meaning they were ready for battle. Now, it doesn't tell us here what the conflict was, what caused him to kind of be, you know, Solomon out the door locked, her not getting up to do anything about it. We don't know what the conflict was or, or even how it was resolved exactly, but we see through their actions that it certainly had been resolved. As they come together, they just sort of kind of reconfirm that love one with another. And in chapter 7 to 8, we see that now, again, there's that romantic action taking place once again. There's that level of just intimacy, you know, kind of getting amped up once more. But this time, things have developed into a mature romance. It's, it's a committed romance. Their intimacy is rekindled and it's strengthened even more so. And so chapter 7, you can read that at home with your wife. That's a little homework for you tonight. That'll be something for you for later, chapter 8, verse 6. Here's what the Shulamite says to Solomon. Chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. So now the Shulamite speaks to her beloved and she wants to be that seal on her husband's heart and arm and that seal was a sign of of ownership of authority to be over the heart again pictured that affection that love that place where you know those that that love was just being poured out the arm was that picture of strength so she's saying that she's fully his she's completely trusted him with her life and she knows that he will love her being over his heart and, and that he will protect her, that arm of strength. And love is as strong as death here. Love is very sacrificial. In fact, we can't fully walk in love unless we're willing to lay ourselves down. I don't believe that the opposite of love is, is hate. I think the opposite of love is self. And that's one enemy that we quickly have within our marriages. Is when we start to look at ourselves more. We start to cater to our needs, our desires, our wants more. You know, when Jesus says to his disciples in general, if anyone desires to come out to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I think that more aptly applies in the marriage relationship. It's, it's a general statement that all of us need to be doing, but, but the place that that's going to really be identified, how you're doing in that arena, is in the arena of marriage. When Jesus says, hey, come after me, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Take your cross daily and follow me. Well, we go through life if we're just kind of living on our own. And, and we don't often have a lot of opportunities to see, how am I doing in that? But the minute you're married and you have another spouse that you're dealing with, all those things that have been about you and for self quickly rise to the surface or quickly become identified. And so much more then do we need to be those that are when in marriage, exercising daily the need to die to self. To lay yourself down and say, man, it's not about me. Uh, let my life be lived to just bless my spouse. To honor them, to lift up them, to encourage them. And here's the great thing. The more that you're doing that with your spouse, the more I believe you're going to see that in return. See, sometimes people get in that trap of thinking in marriage, you know, well, our, our dating relationship was pretty, pretty tough. It was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of turmoil. But when we get married, you know, that's when I'll really work on them. That's when I'll really change them. And we think, yeah, things will get better once I really kind of get my thumb on them. And you see, what happens when we think we're going to change that person 
is that all we're doing is starting to kind of push them further away or cause walls to go up. Instead of saying, I can't worry about what they're doing or how they're behaving. All I can worry about is what I'm doing and take care of me. And, and not take care of me in the sense of just, you know, live for yourself, but say, I got to deal with my responsibilities. What God has instructed me as a husband or what God has instructed you as a wife to say, that's all I can take care of is my responsibilities in this marriage. And I got to leave the rest to the Lord. Ephesians 5 lays it out for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. And, and at the end of chapter 5, see to it, wives, that you respect your husbands and, and, and husbands, that you love your wives. And it's a great series that the, that the ladies are going through on, on Sunday mornings here in their, in their class because the whole love and respect series. Because what happens is what I'm, I'm getting at is that when we start getting in that place where we're trying to push and sort of, you know, try to shape our, our spouse and make them what we want them to be. We're just causing more tension and turmoil in our relationship. Because they start going, why are you treating me like that? See, husbands desire to be respected. There's that innate kind of built-in in them, that desire for respect. And for women, it's to be loved. And so what happens is when the wife isn't feeling loved, they start going, oh, I've got to cause my husband to start to love me. I'm going to start to kind of push. And, and suddenly they start feeling like they're not get, being respected. And so to counter that, to, to say, my wife's not respecting me. I've got to show them who's boss. They start coming across as not loving. And now the wife isn't getting what she wants, but she keeps pushing to get what she wants and pushing in a way that's causing her husband not to give what she wants, but to push back in an even greater way with not showing that. And it just creates a cycle, a vicious cycle. Where nobody's getting what they want and they keep pushing. Whereas when you start going, regardless of what I'm seeing or getting, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to do what the Bible's called me to do, what God's ultimately called me to do. I'm going to either respect my husband, submit to my husband, or I'm going to love my wife as Christ of the church and not worry about what I'm getting. But when I give and I start feeding that to my spouse, when your wife starts feeling loved, she's going to have no problem turning around and respecting you. When your husband starts feeling respected, they're going to want to start showing love to you in a way that maybe they haven't before. Do you see how that works? And I got to say, you know, people today, they, they read that in Ephesians 5 and they go, ah, that's so archaic. That's so, that's so antiquated. And what's that word? Antiquated, thank you. At that word's antiquated. We've got to get, move that on from there. That's so old-fashioned, old-school submit, right? And, and uh, I've had people in, you know, that I've premarital counseled, like, yeah, I don't want any of that in my sermon, in the, in the message, in the ceremony. Don't, any, none of that submit stuff. Do you understand when Christ says, why submit to your husbands, that you've got it easy? Because what does he say to the husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church. How did Christ of the church? He died. We got to die. Submit? That's easy. We got to die. Understand, wise, you got it good. You got the easy part of it. I'll trade you any day. But ultimately, that's what we're, uh, Jesus says for all of us to do to follow him. Deny yourself, take your cross daily and follow me. And when you're doing that and taking care of your responsibility in marriage, Man, you're going to be ensuring a healthy, loving, strong marriage. But all you can do is take care of what you've been called to do. And leave the rest to the Lord. Don't try to make it happen. Don't try to turn your spouse into who you think they need to be. Just be what you've been called to be in your marriage. And let the Lord work in their heart. Win them over. By your love, by your sacrifice by your submission win them over be an example of Christ there well let me just end with this here this whole book here is a great overview of the relationship we enjoy and will enjoy with Jesus now like I said we the interpretation we take in this book is very literal. This, this is a, a true story 
of two people, Solomon and his wife, the Shulamite, who went through a courting engagement process. We see their wedding and wedding night and, and, and the marriage that unfolds. This is a literal story here. But there is great application and and, and, and I think a, a solid picture of what we see Christ doing in the relationship we enjoy with him. Because just as Solomon, you know, he came in disguise the first time to visit this vineyard. Well, so too Jesus came the first time in disguise to his vineyard, to the nation of Israel. Not so much trying to hide himself, but he wasn't recognized. He came as a suffering servant. And while the leaders of the nation rejected him, one small part of the nation fell in love with him. That small, seemingly unloving, unlovely part was the common man, the disciples, and later the Gentiles. But then he went away. And, and really to prepare the palace for his marriage to the Shulamite. In the same way, Jesus went away to prepare a place for us. And when he comes again, he comes in glory, just as Solomon did that second time, to gather his bride he will call us by name and we shall go to meet him and sit at the banqueting table. There we'll hear the precious words of our Savior and King as he tells us of his great love and how lovely we are to him. And we'll finally be able to look him in his eyes and let him know how much we love him too. That's the, the spiritual overview and the blessing of this book that we have here tonight. So what I want to do tonight, just in closing, because I think this would be very appropriate to do. And I want you guys to spread out. If you're here with your spouse, I want you to just take some time and just pray together. Just thank the Lord for your marriage. And maybe there's areas that you want to pray for. So with your spouse, find an area, even if it's going off in a corner in a room or even in the foyer and just praying. But just try to get together and pray. And if you're here today and you're married and your spouse isn't here, just pray for your spouse. Pray for your marriage. And if you're single, maybe you're here today and you're praying for that spouse. But here's something I also want to say. That we sometimes hold marriage as though it's the, the goal, that this is the must for every person, that if you're not married, there's kind of a, a lesser status. Let me just say that maybe God's called you to be single and that marriage isn't the goal for you or, or the, the necessity in your life. And, and I think sometimes we... We do a bad job as the church or as Christians to kind of make marriage the, the necessity. When there might be people that God's calling, say, I'm going to have you be single. I'm going to have you with a greater focus on just serving me. And so if you're here tonight and you're single, just pray for the Lord, for the Lord's will to reveal that to you, to strengthen you in whatever will that is. That we just live our lives for him in whatever capacity that might look like. And then just take some time to pray for the marriages in our church in general. Whether you're with your spouse or single here tonight, just pray for the marriages um, represented within our church here. So spread out, move around, and just take some time to pray. And then um, I'll, I'll wrap us up in prayer. When you hear me praying, then you'll know, wrap it up, and then we'll, we'll dismiss from there. Okay?